one of the practices at the Durkin household, we try to do it regularly, is we try to pray with our babies. We have five babies um, before they go to sleep. And uh, the other night when I had all the kids, the older four kids, in the boys' room, we were praying together and I was asking them what they were grateful for this day. Obviously, children are just learning how to pray and how to talk to God. So I asked them what they're grateful for, and as is probably par for the course, they said, well, they're grateful for their friends, they're grateful for their toys, they're grateful for grandma, grateful for grandpa, grateful for the food that they had this day, and then uh, I'll never forget, it's going to be a prayer I never forget, and if you, uh, for friends on Facebook, you already know what the prayer was. My seven-year-old, JJ, he pauses, he prays, and he says, God, thank you for everything in the world, except for the devil and asparagus. <laughs> amen. And amen. Amen? amen. Amen. Every time I have shared that, people come forward and they're like, Pastor, I love asparagus. Well, God bless you. Not everyone does. When we come to the book of Colossians, we are reminded that Christians are to be a thankful, grateful people. We're to be known for our gratitude. If the message is that God has saved us, changed us, healed us, then as that grace intersects with our attitude, the natural overflow is true, lasting gratitude. In fact, that's where the root of that word gratitude comes from, grazia, grace. So as we turn to the book of Colossians, what is interesting is, yes, of course, the text and the truth, but also when this text, this book, this letter was written. It was written by the Apostle Paul around the year 60 AD. So just 30 years, less than 30 years after Jesus's trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and dissension, we see the gospel is spreading all over the world and churches are being planted. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church or church is in a city called Colossae. And what they used to call that area was Asia, Asia Minor. Today, it is present-day Turkey. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul proclaims some powerful, life-changing truths. In chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, the, Pastor Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul preaches on the bigness of Jesus. Oftentimes, Christians, we know this. When our problems seem really big, it's because our Savior has become really small. In fact, when we return back to the pages of Scripture, chapters like Colossians 1, and we behold Christ in all of His bigness, then all of those big problems start to shrink. For a lot of Christians, it's not a matter of Jesus being good enough. It's a matter of Jesus being God enough. That's the message of Colossians 1 a really big Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 explains and proclaims the greatness of the gospel, how God has made us alive with Christ. Christ is our life. He has canceled the written code. He has delivered victory for us. But in the same chapter, what he also does, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he proclaims the gospel, he also warns against deviations of the gospel. You see, what was happening at that church then, and it still happens today, is something called 
Theologians call it syncretism. Can we say that together? Syncretism. Meaning that people say, all right, I'm going to take my Jesus and I'm going to add this and add that and add this. So in Colossae, at that time, in that place, they were adding these false ideologies like asceticism or Gnosticism or good old-fashioned, and I don't mean good, good old-fashioned religious legalism to the cross, to Christ, to the gospel. And you've heard me say it before, and I'm going to keep saying it as long as I got breath that any addition to the gospel is actually subtraction, that Jesus plus nothing equals, hallelujah, everything. So when we proclaim the bigness of Jesus, when we proclaim the greatness of the gospel, we know there's going to be ideologies that try to take away from that. Ideologies that say, okay, well, Jesus is prominent, but no, the scriptures say he should be preeminent. It's not just enough to have him as part of our life. Colossians says he is our life because we know this, right, friends? Christianity makes a really bad hobby. It makes a really bad hobby. It's not meant to be done in your spare time. Many of us, we say, all right, I'm just, I'm finding the time. I'm trying to find the time. The time will never be found. No, Christ is our life because Jesus is not a hobby. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our friend. So not only is it interesting the context of Colossians 3, not only is it interesting the date, the author, the time, but it's also very, very interesting where the author is writing the letter from. The author is the Apostle Paul, who is writing the letter to Asia Minor, to Colossae. Does anyone know where he's writing the letter from? Rome. From the bottom of a dark, dank prison cell. And he is not only in the middle of his suffering, in the middle of his trial, going to admonish others to believe in a big Jesus, proclaim a great gospel, but seven times he is going to urge Christians to be thankful. And here we are, we sit and we are blessed by one of the most free, one of the most secure, one of the most economically blessed nations the world has ever seen. We're not sitting in a dark, dank prison cell, and yet, oftentimes, very little gratitude, very little thanks, even on a national holiday like Thanksgiving, where we have the holiday, we could partake of the meal, and yet still be plagued by a discontented and ungrateful soul. How many of us know this? We could have a belly full of turkey and a heart that's not full of thanks. So here in the book of Colossians, there is seven different times. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 7. Three times in today's passage. 315, 316, 317. And then 4, chapter 2, where Paul says, be thankful. Give thanks. Do everything with thanksgiving, meaning that long before thanksgiving was a national holiday. In fact, 1,560 years before the pilgrims had a thanksgiving meal with the Native Americans, 1,800 years before Abraham Lincoln made thanksgiving a national holiday, the Apostle Paul is urging Christians, reminding Christians that there is much to be thankful for. 
And we, as Christ ones, Christ followers, those who have been saved by Christ, should be thankful. But oftentimes, what happens? What robs us of our gratitude? What robs us, even on Thanksgiving holidays, of our thankfulness? Well, oftentimes, it's comparison, or it's expectation, or we're just angry. Yes, it's true that we can look around to our left or our right, and there's always someone, at least on the outside, that seems to be doing better than us, richer than us, healthier than us, more prestigious than us, a nicer house, a nicer car, a bigger bank account, a better marriage, better, better whatever, fill in the blank. Gosh, the list keeps going on and on. Someone once said, and it's very, very true, that comparison is the thief of joy. So when we come back to scripture, we are reminded of who God is. And when we understand who God is, we not only understand who we are, but whose we are, right? That we belong to God. And that's why here in Colossians chapter three, we are reminded that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, holy and and beloved. And when the Bible speaks of God's saving sovereign choice, that shouldn't be something that leads to a cold, sterile doctrine or fatalistic thinking. No, it should grant us life and joy. The creator of the cosmos chose me? Jesus said it himself. I tell you the truth. You love because you were first loved by me. Meaning that we are his chosen ones, not only chosen, but then he's making us holy. He's sanctifying us. So what he's doing is he's changing us. Yes, Jesus Christ welcomes us in as, as sinners. He welcomes us in. He doesn't say, okay, you have to clean up your act before you believe. No, he says, believe, and then I will change you from the inside out. So when people come up to me and say, well, pastor, this week has been rough. I've been battling this sin. You know what I like to say? Praise God. Yay. Because what does that battle mean? That battle means the Holy Spirit inside of you is no longer content with the sin that's keeping you down, the sin that's hurting you, the sin that's robbing you of joy and leading to these destructive habits. So the fact that there is a battle is a good thing, but you don't want to just celebrate the fact that there is a battle. You want to continue in the battle. The good news is the battle's already been won. The one who has chosen you will continue to make you holy. Why? Because as it says here, you are his beloved. I almost feel like we should just stop and pray right now. Friends, when's the last time we have paused and we have thought and we have reflected on the fact that you are beloved by God? You are his beloved. It's a language that a man uses who is absolutely head over heels in love with his wife. You are beloved. Everything should flow from that. The fact that God knows you, chose you, is changing you, and you are loved by him? Oh, friends, if that doesn't melt our hearts, 
but also crumble all of our defenses and excuses, then we really have to ask ourselves, why are we no longer thankful? Why is it so hard for us to not just experience thanks, but to express our thanks? Because what we're going to see in Colossians 3, 12 through 17 is similar to a Thanksgiving meal. Let me read it. Let me read the first several verses for you. All eyes in Scripture. Colossians 3, verse 12. The first admonition is to put on, and we'll explain that in a moment. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and what? Beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as what does it say, friends? As the Lord has what? Forgiven you, so you must also what? Forgive. Verse 14. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pause right there and reflect on those several verses. Why did I mention that this passage is almost like a Thanksgiving meal? Well, because there's just so much gospel goodness here. There is just so much to be learned and understood. There's so much to partake of and to delight in and to enjoy. We're not going to get to it all. How many of us can relate to that? On Thursday, you're going to, Lord willing, Thursday, you're going to sit before a delicious meal and your eyes are going to be bigger than your stomach and you're going to want to eat everything. And some of us, we will try our best to do just that but we won't be able to. So today, think of it almost like a Thanksgiving meal. We hear about beautiful things like kindness. It's almost like the mashed potatoes on the table. Or we hear of stuffing. That's almost like the compassionate hearts that God can create in us. Or perhaps this beautiful, true image of how God's love binds all these things in perfect harmony. It's almost like those sweet potatoes, but not just the sweet potatoes because the sweet potatoes aren't sweet enough. What do we do? We put melted marshmallows all over the sweet potatoes. We won't get to all of this, but here's my simple point, friends. When we come to our Thanksgiving tables this Thursday, each one of us probably has some kind of expectation or tradition, meaning that, okay, a lot of us, there's going to be turkey involved, there's going to be mashed potatoes involved, there's going to be stuffing, maybe carrots or corn involved, whatever it may be. But for each of us, there's a certain expectation, all right, well, if this wasn't there, then it doesn't really feel like Thanksgiving meal. And what's that one thing for you? For me, it's cranberry sauce. It's cranberry sauce as God intended cranberry sauce which is from a can, and as soon as you plop it out, it's still in the form of a can with the ripples of a can. Yes, hallelujah and amen. If it's not there, it's not Thanksgiving. I will literally go out and find a can of cranberry sauce. Part of the reason I wanted to bring that up is to say, for some of us, we need to return back to Colossians chapter 3 and ask the Lord, Lord, what parts of this spiritual diet, what part of this beautiful biblical feast have I not been delighting in or partaking of and I need to return to? Because part of the Thanksgiving meal has been missing. And that's why some of us, perhaps, we have a certain 
modicum of kindness. Kindness is not the issue. But when the Bible says that we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, yeah, we're never in the Bible. Unless it's church, unless it's uh, someone that the Bible is being taught to us, which is great, which is beautiful, which is necessary, which is wonderful. How is the Lord leading us to look over this passage, knowing we won't be able to feast on every single truth? Ask yourself, all right, Lord, is this me? Maybe I come to church every week. Maybe I come to church three times a week. But maybe it's been a long time since I've had a compassionate heart. Maybe it's been a long time since I've looked at those people outside the church, those people that look different than me, act differently than me, and truly had compassion for their good and their eternal soul. Ask the Lord as we study. The first analogy here is analogy of putting on something. Putting on. So the actual Greek word is often used to describe putting on clothes, but its literal wooden meaning, put on, means to be, I love this, means to be enveloped by. Means to be almost clothed in, cloaked in, covered by, right? So what we're given is an admonition to put on these six beautiful attributes, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. Put them on. Now, when you came to church this morning, what, we, what do we do? What's our normal pattern and procedure? The alarm clock goes on, we hit the snooze button. Snooze button turns off, we hit it again. Kids come, we uh, tell them to go watch TV, whatever it might be. And then eventually we get ready for church, right? So we put on our socks, we put on our shoes, we put on our pants, we put on our shirts, we put on our jackets, we put on our hats, grab our umbrellas. We have put on our clothes, and yet, how many of us, we forget to put on humility or meekness or kindness? Those are just as important if not more. How many of us ever watch those uh, celebrity award shows? You ever see these things on TV? The older I get, the, the less I can stomach these things. But what tends to happen before they all congratulate each other on how great they are is um, what tends to happen is they have the red carpet fashion show beforehand. So all these celebrities, these actors, these actresses, these singers, whoever it may be, directors, producers, they all walk in and they're wearing their best outfit, their best suit, I can't even imagine how much these things cost. But you ever notice what they say? All the adoring public says not only what they're wearing, but what? Who they're wearing. So look at X, Y, and Z singer. She's wearing fill in the blank. I don't even know the name of these people. Versace or Gucci or whatever. The whole time I'm like, if I was there, I'd be wearing Target. <laughs> or, or if you really want to be fancy, Target. No, no, I mean, it's, it's a very, very interesting thing to say they are wrapped and they're cloaked and they're enveloped. They put on Versace. The good news for Christians is that those who believe and trust in Christ, those who have been born again, who have been made alive, have not only had their past forgiven because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, but here's the good news. We have his presence in the present and we are clothed. We are clothed and covered in the righteousness of Christ in our future. That's amazing. The message, the good news is not just that God forgives you of your past, so you better be perfect from every day forward. No, we, we know we wouldn't even make it through one day. 
The good news is that we are forgiven of our past, given the Spirit of God in our present, and clothed with the righteousness of Christ in the future. Now, some of us will wrongly think, my goodness, does that mean that I can just sin however I want? But that's why the context of this passage preceding it is so important. Because before we're commanded to put something on, Paul says it's time to put a lot off. Take these things that have hurt you, these things that are diminishing you, that are disrupting your walk, relationship, devotion, knowledge of God, and put it off. Put it away. The actual language is put it to death. So think of it this way. If we are forgiven, if we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, that's really great news. But if we want to use as a license to go back to our sin, it's almost as if we're putting the grave clothes back on. We're Lazarus, who Jesus has called and said, Lazarus, come out. And here we are. We're alive. We have new life. We have peace. We have purpose. Then all of a sudden, there's something about those grave clothes where we want to wrap ourselves up in that death again. It doesn't make any sense. So when we put on these things, what we're doing is we're putting off those things. We put off the grave clothes and then ready, we put on our grace clothes. Christians, it's not just what we're against, but it's what we're for. We are against sin. We are against Satan, all of his works, his effects. We are against a worldly ideology that is anti-Christ, but we are for Jesus. We are for the meekness, the humility, the love that he gives us. And I think the humility is an important part. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Get that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. The beautiful freedom of self-forgetfulness. Meaning you take care of yourself, you feed yourself, you have boundaries, you take rest, all that stuff. But oftentimes what we need to do is to remember who we are. We don't minimize or degrade who we are, but we also don't elevate and prop up who we are. That's why I really like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He says, in the end, humility is plainly seeing yourself as you should. Meaning that you're made in God's image, you're loved by God, right? That is a beautiful place to be. So we don't degrade ourselves, but we also don't elevate ourselves to think that we are God. No, the truth is, is that we are healthiest and most humble when we understand what the Bible says about us. Jonathan Edwards even put it like this. He said, nothing sets a Christian so much out of the devil's reach than humility. It's true. Why? Because nothing puts us in the devil's reach more than our pride. I mean, why, why do marriages start to fall apart? Why do people stop going to church? Why do people stop believing? My goodness, the root, the root is almost always pride. And what is the beautiful, binding power of all this? It's love. As it's said there in that passage in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Meaning that using the clothing analogy, if we don't have love, it's as if we're walking around with one shoe, one glove, right? It's 35 degrees, it's cold and it's wet, and we're walking outside in a bathing suit. It doesn't make any sense. 
When love is not the foundation and the motivation, then what happens is we are given to vanity, we are given to legalism, and then it all becomes a charade and we end up even more angry and loveless than when we started. I love how 1 Corinthians 13 puts it like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus himself put it like this in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. So also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. <coughs> so let the love be what unites and binds it all together. And then as we will see, we need to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. All eyes back on verses 15 through 17, a couple more points and principles, and then we'll conclude today's study. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, <coughs> to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and, and hymns and spiritual songs, with what does it say? Thankfulness in your hearts to God, and I love this verse, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Beautiful. So we are encouraged to put on things. Now we are encouraged to let two things happen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Friends, if there is no peace in our hearts, it's because Christ doesn't rule there. We get that? If there's no peace in our lives, it's because we might say we want the peace of Jesus, but we don't want the rule of Jesus. He's not just Savior and friend. He is God and King. So if we really want peace, then run to the Prince of Peace and allow him to rule in your hearts. But not only that, not only that, we are also called to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing all in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So why are we admonished to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, because it's true and because it's for his glory and it's for our good. Have you ever noticed this, friends? No one talks to you more than you. You get that? Now, this doesn't mean like, all right, you're talking to yourselves out loud and you're having a conversation with yourself when you walk down the street. But even right now, even right now, you are having a conversation with you. Even as God is trying to speak to you through his word, you're having a conversation with you. The good news that Christians have is that the war has been won. The victory of Christ on the cross has overcome sin, Satan, and death. But the battles wage on. Oftentimes, the battle that wages in our hearts is to a lesser or greater degree determined by whether we have succumbed in our minds. So 
no one talks to you more than you. And oftentimes, that's not really negative language. I mean, that's not really positive language. Meaning that our thoughts betray us. When people say, just follow your heart, I understand and appreciate what they mean. But the Bible actually says, no, it's a bad idea. Your heart can be deceptive. Your heart can betray you. Your heart can lead you astray. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what happens? So now, when you have this bad movie playing in your mind, when you have this script that you can't stop thinking of, when you have past experiences, past pains, and all of a sudden your mind is now your worst enemy, you inject God's truth into that, and it writes the ship. It corrects the error. It leads to life and to light. And then what? It's, it's twofold now. It's twofold. Notice Colossians 3.16. It's twofold. Not only let the word dwell richly, but then when the word does dwell richly, then all of a sudden God's people start to sing gladly. They start to sing with thanksgiving. How many of us know this? There is a certain blessing in worshiping God, not only when you don't feel like it, but especially when you don't feel like it. Meaning that when we give God the glory and we sing literal songs, hymns, spiritual songs to the Lord, it connects what we feel in our hearts, which betray us, but also what we know about God. Many, many Christians come up to me and say, Pastor, I already know what the Bible says. I just feel this way. And praise God. I mean, in this broken world, God loves us. There's mercy for us. He's with us. Okay? But the instructions are right there. When we study God's word and we praise God, it connects heart with mind. So our gaze is not in the muck and the mire. Our focus is not on ourselves, but our gaze, our attention, our affections are on God. If we focus too much on the problem and neglect and forget the one who is the problem solver, don't be surprised when there's not only no thanksgiving, but there's no hope. So sing, sing. Even if you can't sing, sing. <laughs> Worship. I mean, literally. So we're going we're gonna to close with Colossians 3.17 in 30 seconds. But what's a life verse and what's a life worship song? A literal song. Maybe it's one of the classics, Amazing Grace. It is well with my soul. How great thou art. Maybe you like and resonate more with the contemporary stuff. Take that song with you. After we say amen today, I hope you don't stop singing. When you go pick up your turkey or your pie at Delicious Orchards, you're going to need to be praising God. Because the parking and the crowds are going to be crazy. When we say amen at church, it's not like you're saying goodbye to God. No, let it overflow and fill your heart so then it fills your mouth, so then it fills your car, and then it fills your kitchen, and then it fills your home, and then it fills your kids, and then it fills your workplace. And that's why I love this verse. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. What's the original Greek for everything? Everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, everything. You ready? It's a game changer for some of us. That means that job that you don't like. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? You're not doing it for your boss. You're not even doing it for the paycheck, first and foremost. You're not even doing it for your wife or for your kids. All those things have their place and are good. 
First and foremost, it all changes when you're doing it for the glory of God and for His fame, His renown, and in the authority of His name. My goodness. Then all of a sudden, whether you are at work and you're dealing with a very uh, secular, worldly environment, or you're at home and you're doing dishes, you're buried in laundry, and you got to change 15 diapers a day, you can change diapers for the glory of God. Trust me, there's times where I've needed that. So what does it mean to do everything? Not only word and deed, yes, for the name of Jesus, but with thanksgiving. I love this verse. Let this be how we close, but let it also be an invitation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Rejoice always, friends. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This Thanksgiving, let us be a thankful people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word points to your son so we can remember that there's always hope. We can be reminded that there's sufficient grace. And yes, we can always be thankful, even if the world, even if our hearts would say you have nothing to be grateful for. We could speak truth into that darkness and say, nope, today I am thankful because I got Jesus. And he's always been enough, and he always will be enough. So friends, what's that one sin that the Lord is causing you, calling you to put away, put down, put to death? Would you offer it up to him now? But also, what is one of these attributes that he's calling you to put on? What part of this meal today is he saying, okay, that's you today, my son, my daughter, my child. It's been a long time since you've returned and been reminded that you're my beloved. And that's why you don't have compassion for the lost. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying, everyone knows you're a Christian, but not everyone knows your kindness. How is the Lord not only encouraging, but convicting us right now? The good news is that there's grace, and the good news is that Jesus Christ is at work in our hearts. So would you offer up that sin? Would you turn from it, repent of it, and return back to the Lord? Say this simple prayer with me, if you feel so led. Heavenly Father, This Thanksgiving, I want to be thankful again. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Say this to the Lord. Jesus, Forgive me. Forgive me of my sin. I'm tired and I want to come home. 
Please fill me with your spirit. Pray this to the Lord. Come into my life, Jesus. And grant me the grace to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful, good name. Amen.